2023 was a difficult year for nonprofits in the U.S. Nationwide, there was a trend of decreased charitable giving. But here at FAQNYC and the city, we experienced something different and something special. You all, our listeners, readers, and donors, stepped up beyond anything we've seen before. Thanks to your support, we raised more than in any previous campaign. We celebrated 772 new members. Thank you. And welcome back, 222 former members. Thank you. That means our community is now 4,722 members strong. Thank all of you. That's a new record for us and a true show of confidence in our work. We don't take that lightly. Knowing you have our back means the world to us here at the city. So on behalf of our newsroom and this podcast, thank you and a very happy new year to you. Let's get to it. It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Alyssa Katz, the city's executive editor, and today I'm speaking with Jake Berman, a cartographer, writer, artist, and lawyer, an intriguing mix of pursuits. For purposes of this conversation, Jake is the author of the gorgeous new book, Lost Subways of North America, a volume that traces the history and present of nearly two dozen mass transit systems in the U.S. and Canada using historical maps that Jake has reproduced using modern cartographic technology. You can find an array of his work at the website lostsubways.com, where you can purchase the book, as well as individual maps for nearly two dozen cities, including New York. It's very cool. Jake Berman, welcome to FAQ NYC. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So what made you decide to create this book? Did you already have a website or blog, or did you already just had to have a, a notebook where you were furiously um, uh, exploring ideas? Like, what, what, what did you hope to do here? The book was the product of frustration with L.A. traffic, ultimately, uh, about 15 years ago, I moved to Los Angeles from New York for work, and I was stuck in traffic on the 101 freeway, and I said to myself, what am I doing with my life? My choices are so questionable. And I decided after getting out of a half-hour-long traffic jam to go and go to the library and look up just what had happened to mass transit, why the United States has such bad mass transit compared to elsewhere in the world. One thing led to another. And about five years ago, I got a request from publisher to turn my artwork, which I'd been working on for so long, into a book project, which the original book project didn't pan out, but eventually it did. And I stuck at it. So you're a cartographer, among other things. Uh, was that ever a paid job for you, or is that more like a, a, a passion or a hobby? This has always been a hobby, although one that I do sell my prints online. So it's it's a side hustle like everyone in New York. Um, by day, I'm an attorney. 
Okay. Um, and I have to say the the visuals in this book are are stunning. And it's ironic, of course, that we are on a podcast where all we can do is talk about visuals that um, our listeners cannot see. But just to describe them or attempt to describe them, well, you know, what you have done is recreate these historical maps of transit systems, which are just sort of beautiful artifacts in their own right, but also really tell a story. They tell a history of transit in 23 different cities in the U.S. and Canada that uh, in each of these sort of series of maps that you do uh, really tell the arc of that city's um, history with transit. And um, I just wanted to... Um, you know, get a sense of like how you came up with this scheme because it's very, it's just, again, very beautiful, but also incredibly powerful as a storytelling device. My thought process was that by creating maps of cities that show what used to be, what might have been, what exactly is today, it allows the reader to envision a future where you could still take the train on Myrtle Avenue uh, near me in Brooklyn or take the Second Avenue elevated to someplace on the Far East Side. And that's powerful because it allows you to use your imagination because everyone in New York has had to go to Alphabet City sometime or other. Right, right. And and I think the map, which was it from 1939 for New York City, which is the one that represents the kind of maximum moment for transit, where you had all of, not all, maybe not all of the old L's, but m pretty much most of them, including Myrtle Avenue, including Second and Third Avenue, um, it's it's it is really mind blowing. And you do have to see this book, or you have a website, right? At uh, is it lostsubways.com? Yeah, lostsubways.com. Um, so it's really really stunning to to see that. Um, the other thing that um, your book does that I thought was so brilliant is that you have these each chapter begins with a kind of overview frame that you know where you kind of you have dotted outlines with each of the years labeled and you it it almost tells a it it does it tells a story very vividly just in these outlines of the maps because you can see uh, which systems grew and what to what extent did they grow geographically, which systems consolidated geographically and where you may have had a streetcar or other surface system and that, you know, like shrank over time as, uh, you know, because we've certainly had systems, which you've talked about in the book, where um, cities have eliminated transit entirely or uh, downsized what they had. So, yeah, how did how did you try to use that to orient the the reader? That was actually done at the request of my editor because, and she was right, like always listen to your editor, kids. Um, Correct. But um, my editor said that she really needed a sense of scale for cities that she had never really spent a whole lot of time in. Um, my editor is based in Chicago. And so she said that while it was easier for her to track the progress of Chicago transit, there was no way for her to really get a sense of the scale of, say, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle or other places that she had never really spent that much time in. So I obliged and decided to design these maps that were dead simple. You know, they just show the geographic area of the map that's in the book and they show the year. And it's, uh, it's more of an effective storytelling device 
than I really expected it to be. Yes, I, I I was joking about always listen to your editors because I am one and it's just, it's, <laughs> it's it's great. But I also think, you know, this book is a very it's a very organized presentation of each of these cities and the narrative arc of each of these cities is very, very different. Um, in New York City, for example, you focus on the Second Avenue subway in Atlanta. Um, and what well, I should say with Second Avenue subway and really. Um, yeah, we've managed to open what three, four stations um, along that line, and this was supposed to be a much more expansive system. In other cities, such as Atlanta, you know, you talk about the um, ways that race and uh, anti-urban discrimination really um, shaped the uh, range of that system. I wanted to know how did you pick the twenty-three cities that you decided to to focus on. So I started with the big cities that could not be left out. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Toronto, Montreal. And then from there, I started thinking about what I could tell a story about. Uh, some places like Minneapolis just have an irresistible story to tell about what happened to their transit system because in Minneapolis, the mafia was involved. Um. In other places, like, say, Vancouver, you get to see the kinds of choices that were made by provincial and local governments to build a type of metro system that has gone out of fashion virtually everywhere else. Uh, for those listeners who haven't been to Vancouver, most of their subway system is elevated the same way that, see, say, the 7 train out to Queens is or the, uh, the JMZ through Brooklyn. And most cities don't build elevated lines at scale anymore. It's almost never done. But in Vancouver, they chose to do it. And the political reasons for that were fascinating. It's it's a very uh, good story to tell about how the Canadian government needed to spotlight local technology for the 1986 World's Fair. And conveniently, there was a failing rail car manufacturer owned by the Ontario provincial government that needed to be bailed out. Yeah, no, the, the, the political stories and the economic stories in each of these chapters is is really fascinating. And I should also note while um, discussing these stories that the book basically has two elements, right? It has these gorgeous maps, which I want to talk more about in a moment. And then you have um, pretty detailed essays in each of these uh, chapters, um, really, where you go into some of like just as you discussed, like you're stuck in traffic in Los Angeles and asking mm -hmm. how you got there. You're really going through an exploration in each of these cities about some core question about really their local political economy and I, how did local leaders, local business people who may have been developing the transit systems, like what were what were the propelling forces behind the choices, right? It's not a kind of naive discussion about like, oh, wouldn't it have been great to build it out to you know, this line out to there? Why didn't they serve this area? It really, like, for example, just to to take Los Angeles, something I, I, I learned from your book that, um, you know, Huntington, who created famously this uh, you know, red car system, Really, he was um, all about real estate development. Yeah. And, um, right. And then um, I also should, while we're talking about Huntington and LA, just say you, you also expose the uh, plot of Who Killed Roger Rabbit as basically a fiction. Surprise, surprise for a hybrid animated movie. 
I mean, there also are no cartoon animals who live in Los Angeles, I hate to say. Darn it. <laughs> so what did happen in L.A.? Uh, you're saying that an evil cartoon villain did not dismantle the system as part of an evil plot? Yeah, that didn't happen. The truth is a lot more interesting in that Los Angeles, like most other cities, had a privately owned transit monopoly that made their real money doing something else. So in Los Angeles, the transit monopoly was fundamentally a real estate developer. Uh, in Atlanta, the transit company was Georgia Power, which is still the electric company today. And once the money began to run out from real estate development, the red car system was left to wither on the vine because they had been such jerks to the people of Los Angeles for decades and they had been so commercially rapacious, uh, they had been dicks in other words, that the people of Los Angeles had no patience for transit by the 1940s when it came time to decide whether to bail out the Pacific Electric and fix it, or alternatively to say, to hell with this, we're just going to build freeways instead. So, um... You know, I, I think that that chapter and, and and so many others kind of gets at this thing that's so like powerful about your book. You're it's like you're on this journey through time and space to ask like why um, are U.S. cities and um, you know primarily why are we so hostile to transit? Why hasn't it really been able to take hold and thrive? Or where it has, why are the systems really unable to? grow to their fullest potential and the full needs of uh, the, the communities they serve. And I know I'm framing that in the, the negative, but it's it's clearly very present in your book, right? That there are these aspirations or these hopes, and, and you really document the very, very real challenges that get in the way. I mean, you told you already talked about the um, your experience getting stuck in transit in Los Angeles. I'm sure you know, we in New York City have similar frustrations that you've got to wait for um, the B54 on Myrtle Avenue, right? I mean that you that this line um, doesn't exist anymore. And so, I mean, I wondered to you the sense of like why that particular narrative. I mean, you talked about being stuck in traffic, but when you were going through these stories in city after city. Um, kind of, yeah, how that played out in the different cities that you're looking at. And, and also, were there any places where it, you saw a more hopeful trajectory and or didn't see that kind of hostility to transit really front and center in their stories? Sure. The thing that I think is most interesting is it's not necessarily a question of building the transit in the first place. A place like Dallas has a rail system the size of the Barcelona metro. The more complicated question is, how do you put stuff near the stations? And in a place like New York, well, duh, the subway stations have stuff nearby. Uh, if you take the A train even deep into Queens, like uh, take the A out to Lefferts Boulevard, you still have pretty walkable neighborhoods near the stations, even pretty far out in Queens. In places like Dallas or Los Angeles, they just don't do that. And the harder question is, how do you convince cities to not just build transit in the first place, 
but also to allow the kinds of old-fashioned neighborhoods to develop around the train stations that you see in, say, New York or Philly or Boston. Right. Um, and it's um, and I feel like New York, New York, even like we take for granted that we do have, you know, what, what other cities would call transit oriented development. That that term is not even really in the local vocabulary in New York City because the city really did develop um, in its modern era um, it, you know, as a transit oriented city. But we also have, you know, it's it's interesting to see these, you know, the systems you talk about that are still expanding. And Los Angeles is a good example. While a mm -hmm. lot of it may be light rail or um or, or other other forms other than than subways, um, it is a, a pretty aggressively expanding system. And I think in in New York we have that classic uh tendency to be very uh, parochial about uh, New York City superiority and think, well, we have the best subways and aren't they mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, great and expansive, but actually vast areas are not served. And it's uh, always shocking to me uh, when I see projects such as the Interborough Express light rail proposal and, and other proposals for expanding transit just uh, but somehow become controversial. And um, I'm just, you want to get your perspective on what, like, why is that? And what is the price that we are paying as a city for not um, really thinking in an expansionist way about transit in this era? In New York, it's complicated because things have been the way they are for so long that even incremental expansion like the mile and three quarters of the Second Avenue subway is treated as a huge deal. When my grandmother was living on the east side and working at Bellevue Hospital in the 1930s, the city thought it was totally feasible and totally normal to build a Second Avenue subway with express tracks from Spanish Harlem to South Ferry. And now it's treated as a huge deal that it goes from 63rd to 96th. The other issue, though, is that it's much harder bureaucratically to build a lot more transit than it used to be. In the old days, all it took was a city council vote and the city would allocate money and they'd let out construction contracts and the city council could just do what it wanted. Nowadays, because of the way the MTA is run, the MTA is run by Albany, but the suburbs have a voice on the board. The city has a voice on the board. Nobody's really in charge of the MTA, so it's hard to get the politics to get into motion to build more transit. You have to get consent of suburban politicians. You have to get consent of city politicians. You have to get Albany to buy in. And it's very different from the old days when Mayor LaGuardia or Mayor, Mayor Hyland could say, we want to build a subway. We are going to build it in X way on Y route. And if you want this, you should vote for me. That's just not how things work anymore. And I am a big fan of reforming the uh, MTA bureaucracy so that you can do things in the old way. 
So you, you, your book is very disciplined in really focusing on one narrative per chapter, right? Mm-hmm. And including in cities where you could do entire books about their their lost subways um, or their transit systems. And of course, New York City is one of those cities. So I'm curious, like besides the Second Avenue subway, where you, you write about just the obstacles to uh, really realizing um, the, the system is planned or that line is planned. I um, mean, we mentioned you know, the Myrtle Avenue L. What other, if you if you were doing a Lost Subways of New York book, what what other uh, uh, chapters might be in that book? If it was going to be just focused on New York, uh, I think that the big ones would have to be dealing with the subways that were planned in the 1920s and 1930s, where there are still ghost stations around the city. So the Broadway station on the G train has multiple extra decks because it was designed to have a tunnel connecting to it from Manhattan. And all that stuff is abandoned right now. Uh, The same way that the Delancey Essex JMZ has an entire additional deck for uh, what used to be the Brooklyn trolleys to uh, turn there. Um, Same thing for Chambers Street on the JMZ. There's those extra platforms that are in plain sight and have just been disused because downtown is not the center of Manhattan anymore. So there's a whole bunch of really interesting uh, anecdotes to be told about what could have been with the New York City subway. But I chose to focus on the Second Avenue line because, well... Two reasons. First, I used to live on 63rd and 1st. And as someone who hates hiking to Lexav to get on the train, uh, that played a role. Second is that the Second Avenue line is something that's the butt of municipal jokes. You know, you have those madmen uh skits where the uh where they're saying, Oh yeah, this apartment on the far east side, this will go up like crazy in value once they finish the second avenue subway and of course it's set in the 1960s <laughs> yeah and speaking of the 1960s you one of the maps you have in the new york chapter is this 1968 uh future system map and it's just extraordinary to look at because you're talking about some it doesn't include all of those uh planned lines that you talked about a, a moment ago because by that point 1968 the, the future plans had had evolved, but it, you saw significant expansions like down Utica Avenue in Brooklyn and in many other uh, places that are, are currently transit deserts as far as the New York City subways are concerned. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the 1960s plans is the way that the MTA treated all of its constituent entities as potentially being part of the subway. So. The idea in the 1960s was to start running subway trains on the LIRR tracks out to eastern Queens and to convert some of the further out Long Island Railroad lines to carry subway trains instead of just the LIRR. Something like that is inconceivable today because of the various turf wars that go on inside the MTA. Um, A good example of how those turf wars turn out is that the MTA built an entire third and fourth deck to Grand Central Station 
because they couldn't get Metro North and the Long Island Railroad to share the lower deck. And Grand Central is the largest railway station on the planet. There's plenty of room for both the LIRR and Metro North. Right. And and I think the, um, you know, you, you really do see this play out in the MTA politics you talked about earlier, right? It's that they, because it is a regional system, because it's ultimately beholden to the governor, you end up having these investments that really, in a lot of ways, shortchange the subway system and prioritize uh, commuter rail proportional to the number of people they ultimately serve. It's just this sort of this, this slicing of the pie that is very specific to New York City. Um, and I also wanted to just um, note that, you know, you're, I think your book also um, really highlights highlighted for me the um, real you know, absence of federal leadership in the U.S. Canada is a slightly different story, as you mm-hmm. tell it. But you 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 have um, a sort of moment where you have big transit grants that end up helping jumpstart Atlanta and you know, some other systems. But other than that, it's a it seems to be a very passive role. Yeah, the way that it used to be was that the federal government would pass legislation. They would give X dollars for transit, and they just say, here, take the money, build a subway in, uh, say, Detroit. Oh, Detroit, you don't want the money? Okay, fine. Uh, We'll send the money to Atlanta instead. And that's very different from the way they do things now, where there's a very long, painful, and bureaucratic process to decide which transit investments get funded. This, by the way, is also very different from the way that highways are funded. Highway funding, there is a no questions asked uh, 80% federal contribution. So if, say, the state of New York says it wants to build a new expressway somewhere and it can come up with the money, the feds will cut a check and call it a day. There's no questions asked. With transit, it's very different, and they, and in general, federal funding for transit construction is something like fifty percent of the total cost, as opposed to eighty percent for highways. So, um, I want to talk about the maps. Um, how do you create them? What's your your process? Because you're clearly working from archival materials. You seem to be using modern technology to re-render these these gorgeous visuals. My process is that I start by going into the source material. So there are there are many sources of these original maps. Sometimes it's ancient guidebooks. Uh, sometimes it's transit maps themselves that were put out by the individual companies. Sometimes it's by filing public records requests, except especially for the unbuilt lines in cities like, say, Detroit. You do have to file public records requests to get those types of things. Uh, once I've established that there's enough information to plot a map, I then start looking at period maps to see how exactly a cartographer would have illustrated a subway system in, say, 1960, and take what their design style is and use modern printing technology to do everything in full color to do kinds to do the kinds of things that would have been prohibitively expensive in the past because for most of the 20th century full color printing was really really expensive and for your garden variety subway map 
a lot of places would not have spent the money to create a map that was beautiful. They would have created something that's black and white and very functional, but not necessarily looking good on a page. So what do you see for the future of New York City's transit? I know this is a book called Lost Subways. It's a a history, um, but you're clearly looking at history to find your way to the the present and into the future. And, you know, you, you have now Governor Hochul has announced, you know, we're gonna, they're going to move forward with this, um, not just the continuation of the Second Avenue subway into East Harlem, but then this connector around 125th Street. Um, beyond that, what's what do you see on the horizon? What, what do I see on the horizon or what do I hope is on the horizon? Um, both. Say, start with hopes and then finish with reality. So what I hope happens is that the city and state and the suburbs can learn to play nice with each other and that you do make the kinds of reforms necessary to make the MTA work better and to attack the housing crisis by building more housing near transit. This is pretty egregious, especially in places like Long Island, where if you get off of the Hicksville LARR near where my aunt lives, there's just parking lots. There's no anything within walking distance of the train station except for a Dunkin' Donuts. I know I've been to that Dunkin' Donuts a lot. And one would hope that people learn to do things the way that they did in the past, which led to better neighborhoods and more walkability and less pollution. What I expect to happen is that there is the kind of large-scale housing reform, if not uh, pushed by local governments, then pushed by Albany, because the housing crisis really has gotten so bad that it's pretty much a no-brainer to build uh, housing near the train stations. Um, There's a really interesting note that somebody pointed out to me that many of these bungalows that are now going for three quarters of a million dollars in outer Brooklyn or outer Queens would have been affordable to, you know, a barber or, you know, salt of the earth people. You don't have to be a millionaire to afford a house. And one of those things I sincerely hope is that you do get housing reform out. Uh, that it becomes possible for more people to live near train stations, not just if you live in uh, Manhattan or the inner parts of the outer boroughs. So, Jake Berman, your book, Lost Subways of North America, is really a treat. I uh, enjoyed it tremendously. I read it um, from cover to cover in one sitting, just learning all, so much about about New York, but about so many other uh, transit systems across the country. Thank you so much for joining us on FAQ NYC. It's my pleasure. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to support our work is by setting up a monthly recurring donation by going to thecity.nyc slash give. If you already make a monthly donation and want to add a special one-time gift, you can also do that at thecity.nyc slash give. 
As ever, FAQ's work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc, and the pod also receives support from P&T Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side, with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. The podcast is a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists, and is affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY's City College, where our co-host Christina Greer is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars Inaugural Fellows. Our host for this episode was Alyssa Katz. Harry Siegel is our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Thank you to our guest, Jake Berman, author of The Lost Subways of North America. And thank you, listener, for joining us on Making It This Far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.